Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. As always, I am still Adam Wilder. And today we have a very special guest, Major General Retired Rick Evans, who is now the Executive Director of the National Strategic Research Institute at the University of Nebraska, the UARC for STRATCOM. Now, thanks for being here, Rick. Yeah, glad to be back. I appreciate the invitation. So I must not have screwed it up too badly the first time. (laughs) <laughs> now, the in our talk after the show last time, we were, we were having this discussion about NC3 modernization, and we decided we'd have to have you back to come on because you, more than most, have an extensive background in in airborne operations and the airborne leg of, of NC3. And so with NC3 modernization, a big priority for the nation right now. And with, you know, we've had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have Taiwan threatening or China threatening Taiwan. And, you know, the North Koreans have said they're going to expand their nuclear arsenal. The Iranians are enriching uranium at 85%. I mean, we have a plethora of threats that make our need for secure airborne NC2 even more important than it ever was during the Cold War. So with that, let's delve into a discussion. Can you start us off by giving us a little of the history of how we got airborne? How we, how do we get Abincap? How do we get NAOC? How do we get uh, Takamo? What's the history there? Yeah, yeah I, I concur with your assessment, Adam, that, you know, we face a pretty dynamic threat environment and, uh, and that, of course, drives us to think about uh, how do we modernize our NC3 architecture and systems and assets just uh, at the same time we're looking at all the challenges just in the triad uh, modernization itself. Um, and really, when you think about it, we were looking at the same thing back in the early 60s when we started thinking about uh, how do we present ourselves with a survivable command and control capability if we have a uh, exchange of nuclear uh, attacks between the Soviet Union and the United States. And, uh, and that really you know, drives us back to that, okay, what, what does survivable command and control look like? Because uh, and you pointed out my background, uh, you know, and as I think about it, I'm more of what you would call an operator in that environment in there. And I've had a chance to see it from a variety of different uh you know, positions uh, in my seven years of STRATCOM, both from the ground side, the airborne side, and, and other uh, capabilities, and plenty of exercises to see all that. And, you know, what always struck me was that when you compared it to the history out there, you, uh, you know, we have certainly morphed in the, you know, 60 plus years that we've been talking about airborne, especially uh, command and control. But if you go way back, it's interesting because, uh, and I don't know that I knew this before I was down at Stratcom, 
and did some research uh, on a project for General Hyten. But, you know, uh, one of the things I uncovered was the original thought was, let's go deep underground and make this thing really hardened and survivable. And, and so if you go back to the early 60s, you know, what actually SAC was proposing was a combination of some airborne command and control platforms, communications relay platforms, and what they were calling a deep underground support center. And you, know, you can do research and you can find that term out there. It's not the easiest to find, but it's out there. And, and it, you know, it's interesting because this is this takes us back to really 1960, 61 timeframe when they were looking at this. And, and the original plan was let's go ahead and you know, modify some KC-135s to give us a airborne command and control capability based out of Offutt. Obviously, SAC was headquartered at Offutt, uh, along with modifying some existing B-47 platforms for communications relay. Interestingly, Lincoln, just down the road, had B-47s as was was one of the, the first bases that actually had a deployed uh, B-47 communications relay. Uh, I think that was uh, the code name for that one was P- Pipe Cleaner or something like that. But uh, again, you know, not one that's highly publicized, but is out there in the history. But this deep underground support center, and and it played a key role in development of the airborne command and control capability that we eventually saw in the EC-135 performing the Looking Glass mission. But uh, it, it's interesting because what SAC was looking for was a hardened facility deep underground. If you remember, Cheyenne Mountain was in the process of being built about the same time. But the original proposal was 3,500 feet underground, 20,000 square foot of, of workspace to perform a mission. Uh, and SAC, uh, you know, there were some discussions about whether this would fit in the mountains of Colorado or someplace closer to Offutt. Um, and SAC really pushed that close to off it being critical to be able to relocate the battle staff quickly and continue to operate. And, and so they had actually chosen a site uh, about 70 miles south of here near Ponte Nebraska and, mm-hmm. and uh, done some preliminary work against that. And, you know, as do all military projects, it morphed. And so all of a sudden a 20,000 square foot requirement became 40,000. And, uh, you know, but, Think about it, 3,500 feet underground, able to survive a 50 megaton direct hit. I mean, that's fairly impressive, yeah. and it's also fairly costly. <laughs> and so what they quickly found as they went through the, you know, okay, how do we really think about this, and is that doable? And remember, there's some other things, uh, and I don't want to confuse the audience with something else called the Deep Underground Command Center, which is a Washington, D.C. thing. Um, that was also going on at the same time. So this is more focused on allowing SAC to continue to its mission. But ultimately what they found was that was too costly to build this underground facility in there. And we also found it feasible to do the airborne mission. And so we focused in on that. Uh, and that's really kind of the start of the the Air Force's involvement in an airborne capability. And also the Navy eventually came in there with the Takamo and the EC-130. And then we ultimately moved, uh, you know, to to the E4 being included in that as well. But, you know, uh, that that's a little bit of the background. So this really goes back to the early 60s. And if you think about it, that became pretty, we, we deployed that capability very quickly. Uh, and when you think about it, and I had to go back and look at the dates, but uh, I wrote them down. So on uh, February 3rd, 1961, President Kennedy ordered the 
airborne command posts that SAC had in place to commence 24-7, 365 airborne alert. And that's a pretty huge date. So we had already, in a space of just a few years, you know, built a fleet that was capable of of backing up the SAC headquarters. And uh, for those that aren't aware, the, the term looking glass really dates back to providing a mirror capability to the SAC underground uh, command post uh, at, uh, at Offutt. And, uh, you know, of interest to me since I grew up in this area, and actually I was at, in the SAC underground pa- command post with my family on our tour back in the mid-70s, um, but it was pretty prominent. And it, it, the communications capabilities that were brought into the Omaha area to support SAC really are largely responsible for Omaha, for example, becoming the 800 capital of the world. And so it had uh, dual telephone switches. It had uh, connectivity that was better than any place in the country, maybe outside the Pentagon or the White House, or maybe even better than that. Um, highly connected and highly survivable. And your audience has seen charts out there that talk about the NC2 architecture of the 60s through the 90s. And that was very robust and redundant for a reason. Um, and I think it all goes back to, and you and I were talking about this uh, previously, you know, the, the attitude back then was post-attack command and control. So the, hence the acronym PACS, post-attack command and control system, and building that capability to survive a nuclear attack and continue to operate, reconstitute forces, and offer options to national leaders. And so the airborne piece of that really became prominent once we went to that 24 uh, seven airborne alert and uh, we can go into that a little bit more deeply if you want, uh, or I'll, I'll pause here and see if that uh, brought up any questions from your angle. Yeah. So as we, as we built this out and we built it out rather quickly and you know, the history you just provided is I actually didn't know that that's something I hadn't been, I, you know, I knew about the time, but the details of it are actually pretty interesting. I didn't know there was that, you know, analysis of alternatives. And we came down on an airborne leg after, you know, thinking through a 3,500 foot down uh, command post. That's, that's, you know, and in Nebraska, I can only imagine the challenges of building something that big, that deep. So that's a, that's certainly an interesting thing. But now as we built out our airborne capability, can you walk listeners? Cause some listeners probably know that there's an airborne leg and they kind of know what we do, but could you walk through the different platforms that perform the different missions, you know, who's doing what, for what reason, what capabilities, and, and how that all works together? Yeah. So if you go back in that history that we just described in there, as, as once we settle on airborne, NC2 is kind of the survivable uh, command and control capability that the nation needed in there. You know, that really put us focused on the largest fleet at the time, the KC-135 or the C-135 fleet. And uh, we all know today that fleet still survives. Uh, in fact, uh, the E-6 Takamo or Mercury uh, aircraft operated by the Navy that performs a looking glass mission today for STRATCOM is a derivative of the 707 platform that uh, forms uh, the background of that. But when we go back you know, uh, to the 60s, they made the decision to focus on the C-135 and of course, the Air Force was the primary operator of C-135s, and so we we essentially started modifying these aircraft into EC-135s. 
And uh, there's a variety of, of uh, different models of the EC-135, but that is essentially the platform that performed the looking glass mission, the SAC backup command post, if you will, uh, from the earliest days in there. And did airborne launch uh, or airborne alert from, uh, I mentioned, 3 February to 24 July 1990. We relied on that platform. And that was when we stood down from alert. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things that that uh, I've found when I talk to audiences about, uh, you know, what I do, for example, as an airborne emergency action officer on the, the current Looking Glass platform, which is an AVE-6, is most people said, well, I thought Looking Glass went away in the 90s. And uh, no, it actually never went away. In fact, the mission still continues today, and it still continues on 24-7, 365 alert. It's just not airborne all the time. It can right. go airborne and do airborne alert, but it's not airborne in there. But I mentioned earlier the numbers are pretty amazing here. But I, I went back and, and pulled up uh, a tracking sheet I had since I was a KC-135 wing commander at one time. And I had a tracking sheet of every 135 ever built by the Air Force and what happened to it. Wow. And when you go back and look at that, um, you know, 700, uh, 800 almost, uh, 135s built in there. Uh, the Air Force modified about 45 of those to become EC-130s, EC-135s. Some of those for SAC, but if you also remember, and your audience uh, that's been around for a while, remember we used to have airborne command posts in, in PACOM, in UCOM, uh, you know, in other places. Even uh, Tactical Air Command had an EC-135 platform in there that they used for command and control. And, and so we also had theater nuclear weapons at that time as well. But, uh, you know, you started out with that base fleet of about 45. Um, I'm not even going to get into the B-47 part of this that I mentioned, but, you know, I looked at the numbers. They actually modified 36 B-47s to do the mission, but that phased out pretty quickly because remember what was also going on in the 60s? Here in Nebraska, you mentioned building an underground command center like that. Well, at that time, we also built, for example, 12 Titan or Atlas silos in Nebraska, uh, you know, and, and and so we were doing a lot of building here. Plus, we were getting uh, the Minuteman fleet uh, deployed not soon uh, soon thereafter in Nebraska as well. So a lot of construction going on. But, you know, we, we ended up with this fleet of 45. So think about the 45. Then the Navy also does the TACAMO, take charge and move out mission, which think about it as a VLF comm relay mission, primarily designed to link the National Command Authorities to submarines that are submerged uh, and get emergency action messages to them. The Navy's had that mission for a long time. Uh, it started out in C-130s. Uh, and then they, I went back and looked at the numbers. They had 12 C-130s doing the TACOMO mission. Uh, eventually, we added in some E-4s into that fleet before before we uh, won the Cold War. And so if you just add 45 EC-135s, 4 E-4s, and 12 EC-130s from the Navy in there, I mean, you're talking about somewhere around 60 60 platforms focused on NC2, airborne NC2. Now let's look at today. Today, we, of course, the Air Force made the decision in the late 90s to divest itself of the EC-135 fleet. Uh, they were facing a pretty large, do we re-engine it with the CFM-56 engines that we were doing on the KC-135s and the RC-135s, or do we retire it? Well, having no adversary, you know, the Air Force believed it could get out of that mission and retire these older aircraft and uh, and we bought into that as a nation, you know, that we didn't need that robust capability um, that we had had before with this 60 aircraft fleet. Well, what we ended up doing was the Navy had decided it was going to get out of the C-130 
um, for Takamo, and uh, they procured the E-6 Mercury aircraft to replace it, and and they bought 16, and those 16 still exist today. And so today we have 16 E-6s and four E-4s, 20. So we're about a third the size of what we were at the uh, at the height of the the airborne NC-2 fleet, and you know those the missions haven't changed all that much because when you look at um, the E-6, for example, it performs the U.S. Strategic Command Looking Glass Command and Control Backup and the TACAMO mission and the Airborne Launch Control mission uh, of being able to launch ICBMs from the air are all accomplished out of that uh, particular platform, along with some other missions that are classified. The E-4 fleet has more of a national level role. Uh, and even though it's based at Offutt, uh, it supports uh, a variety of national level missions in there that are classified. Um, and uh, those are more focused on that than they are perhaps uh, U.S. Strategic Command. And And your audience may remember that uh, in uh, about 2005, six uh, QDR, NPR timeframe, the Air Force actually proposed to eliminate the E-4 fleet as well. And, uh, and the, the current thought at that time was we can get rid of the E-6 and the E-4 and go to a ground-based distributed command and control network. Um, and STRATCOM was pushing that at the time. Um, probably fortunately for all of us that are still involved in the mission today, our uh, national leadership looked at it and the congressional leadership looked at it and said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> we have to be ready for the worst day. And fixed facilities are one thing, but if they're not hardened, um, they're certainly not survivable and they're easily targetable because they don't move. And so one of the things General Hyten kind of brought back is that mentality that, uh, okay, mobile is survivable. There's a certain characteristic of mobility that uh, makes you survivable. And so the fleet has endured. It survived that that uh, attempt to retire all the airborne platforms. And, and we have 20 today. And so if you think about those missions, I mean, those are pretty important missions because as I always reminded people on the, on the looking glass mission uh, performing it, I mean, that is the last line of defense. Uh, if, if all of our hardened facilities and other capabilities get destroyed, it's possible that the EC, the E6 looking glass mission with a, with a battle staff of eight or nine people on it is going to be all that's left for the president to talk to about the status of forces, um, to offer options, to adaptively plan missions and other things in there. And so, you know, that tells you the mission is still critically important and the people we put in that mission are are highly skilled and, and qualified. And that mission is on alert 24-7, 365, whether it's airborne or on the ground someplace in there, and is likely to endure because we have to have that survivable command and control capability out there uh, going forward. And so so as we look at the future, the way I look at it is uh, there is going to more than likely be an airborne requirement that continues down the road. It's got to fill the U.S. Strategic Command, command and control mission, looking glass, if you will. It's got to fill the airborne launch control capability that we require. Because remember, if you don't have that and you could somehow destroy all of our launch control centers, um, you would essentially render the entire Minuteman force today, um, Sentinel tomorrow, as uh, unusable. 
Right. And so we always want to present that survivable capability to to utilize our ICBMs, um, even if you choose to attack the launch control centers themselves in there. So that mission will have to be uh, done in the future, whether that's incorporated into a single platform with the looking glass or as a separate uh, mission is probably TBD. You know, uh, we had a couple interesting discussions, uh, you know, one of which would was, uh, this is back a few years, could we use a biz jet for that? Something that's uh, small, survivable, just has a very small staff on it, focused on the, the airborne launch control system mission and uh, and maybe based closer to the ICBM fields. Um, and that gives us some flexibility with regard to how we use the E6 fleet today and, and whatever we replace it with tomorrow. Um, and then, of course, you got the national mission that's done in the E4. Those are very unique platforms. Most of the audience knows we follow the president around with that airplane. It has a pretty, pretty unique and uh, some one-of-a-kind communications capabilities to perform all missions uh, that, that could be in place on a routine day or the worst day. And uh, that hence it has the, the nickname Doomsday plane for that reason. And, and so as we look to the future, you know, kind of the thought has been, how do we combine those into one single platform? Because as the audience knows, anytime you have multiple different types of platforms, you got to have the whole sustainment process, all the depots, everything in there. If you can combine those onto one platform and then just customize the platform for the mission, you know, is a more efficiently uh, efficient way of doing that. And so the thought has been to procure what we call the SAOC, which is the Survival sure. Airborne Operations Center, as kind of that single platform going forward. Um, and that would focus on the missions that the NAOC is doing and that the E6 is doing outside of TACAMO. Because I think I already mentioned the TACAMO mission itself, the Navy has already moved forward on moving that back to a C-130, uh, the Q platform, um, and, uh, and so it will eventually, um, replace the uh, E6 in the TACAMO mission. And that'll actually be a good move because, uh, as you can imagine with a small fleet of only 16 E6s trying to do the TACAMO airborne command post, airborne launch control center, all those missions, plus a few others, um, in one platform stretches it pretty thin. And, uh, and so, you know, getting back to more robust uh, air fleet, I think, is going to be part of what I hope comes out of our recapitalization efforts uh, going forward. So I'll stop there and see if uh, I offered any more questions in there or we can talk a little bit more about history if you want to do that. But, you know, I think that probably the important point I'd take to the audience would be the airborne command and control leg it remains critical to providing a safe, secure, effective and survivable uh, strategic deterrent force, because if you can't link the president to the weapon system, the weapon system is useless. And so as many potential ways as we can have to, to provide those types of pristine capabilities that can survive an initial attack and, and offers a chance for a counterstrike, uh, or at least offer the options to the president in there become hugely important to having a, a robust strategic deterrent force. Well, with that, it is time to take a quick break. I'm Adam Lowther, and we're with Rick Evans, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Analog Deterrent Center. 
whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and you're listening to Nuclecast and we're talking with Rick Evans, retired Major General, about the airborne command and control mission of U.S. STRATCOM and the nation. Now, as we've talked thus far, we, we've had a, a handful of terms that I would ask you to to sort of specify the differences. So we've talked about NAOC, we've talked about ALCS, we've talked about ABINCAP, Looking Glass, TACAMO. Can you can you specify the differences exactly what those are sort of in simple terms and the yeah. differences? Yeah, and of course, any of us that live in the military world know that we've got an <laughs> acronym for everything, and this is an area where you can go a lot deeper with acronyms. But uh, you know, so the way I would probably keep it simple is: so you have a E six Mercury aircraft. Yep, um, and your audience can look that up as the E six B platform. Um, and I didn't say it earlier, but interestingly, that platform is really designed only to do the TACAMO mission. So take charge and move out, which, uh, that's the Navy. mission. Yeah. Navy mission primarily designed to link, uh, to make sure we can get emergency action messages to submerged and survivable SSBNs, nuclear, uh, capable submarines. Um, and so, the fleet was later adapted. As I mentioned, the Air Force decided to get out of the airborne mission uh, with the EC-135. And we actually made a smart decision in that. Well, but what is the backup for U.S. Strategic Command now when that stood up in 1992? Because um, it still had a backup requirement out there. And so they modified the E-6 aircraft to include a U.S. Strategic Command battle staff. So so as your audience thinks about these missions that are going on every day with the E-6, for example, um, you're going to have a, an airplane on alert for the U.S. Strategic Command Command and Control Backup, Looking Glass being the code name for that. You're going to have airplanes on alert at various places around the country to perform the TACAMO mission, which are communications relay primarily, as you might expect, based on the coasts. To, uh, to be able to communicate with submarines that are in the Atlantic and the Pacific area. Um, and, uh, and then the Airborne Launch Control System, ALCS, mission is actually built into the E-6 platform. And that's accomplished only when there's a U.S. Strategic Command battle staff on the aircraft. And so that mission is typically performed in conjunction with the Looking Glass Alert mission, and we're able to reposition the aircraft uh, to perform that mission throughout the, the three um, remaining Minuteman three fields, primarily in the north central part of the United States. Uh, and and so so that's kind of the E6 part of that. Uh, the other thing I mentioned was the E4B. So that is an Air Force aircraft, uh, 747-200 model. Um, so uh, 1970s vintage platforms that the Air Force bought and, and repurposed for this mission. Interestingly, if you look at the history of the NAOC, the National Airborne Operations Center, 
It started out as the National Emergency Airborne Command Post, known as NECAP. And so if you go way back, actually that mission was first on A-135. And then we purchased the uh, the 747s to give us a little more robust capability for all of the classified missions that that platform does. But that's flown by the Air Force, based at Offutt Air Force Base. Uh, but obviously they do their own versions of alert around the country and around the world, depending upon who they're supporting. Um, the audience will see the Secretary of Defense, for example, sometimes flies on that aircraft because he's able to maintain control over pretty much worldwide forces from that platform. And so it has very robust capabilities to do about any mission that the nation would need out of that. The E-6 fleet that I mentioned earlier is primarily based at Tinker Air Force Base, Oklahoma, although it does alert from various places around the country as well in terms of the, the fleet itself. Um, so that E-4 fleet, the current mission is NAOC, National Airborne Operations Center, and there some of your audience will remember the term night watch. Uh, so that's kind of another code name you'll hear uh, associated with the mission, but essentially on the watch all the time for the nation. Um, and I, I do have a little bit of time flying on the, the NAOC, uh, primarily for exercises and other things in there. Um, so uh, most of the missions are classified and we can't go into great detail about those. But, you know, a, a very unique platform, um, sort of a one of a kind. Uh, there's only four of them. And uh, typically there's one in the depot at all times. We're lucky if we see three out available at any given time, because uh, as you might imagine, these are very uh, highly upgraded and survivable platforms. In fact, uh, some of the videos you can see on the E4, for example, talk about that they still use some analog systems on them, primarily because they're that makes them survivable. And so, so those are the the platforms in place today. That the new C130 that they're the Navy is going to pursue. Uh, I think it's a J model uh, EC-130 will replace the Tacomo part of the E-6. Now, what happens to the E-6 fleet is a little bit up in the air. Will that be repurposed and focus on the other missions that I talked about earlier that it's assigned to it uh, until we can come up with a, a different platform, potentially? Um, they'll have to make the decision. Uh, the Navy, of course, may or may not operate that in the future. What I would uh, predict is you're going to see the Air Force get back into this mission um, for many reasons, one of which is it, it is an air mission and it is pretty highly uh, tied to a variety of Air Force capabilities that are out there. And, and of course, uh, Offutt is uh, the home of U.S. Strategic Command, uh, an Air Force base in there. So I think you're likely to see whatever future aircraft we uh, procure being an Air Force platform down the road. You know, it, it's other also interesting. So that's some of the acronyms that we've talked about there you know, the other thing that uh, I always remind folks, and the airborne is just kind of an extension of ground-based command and control. And so whether we're talking about JADC2 today, but I mean, the if for those that are history buffs, uh, being able to go back and, and uh, recreate or at least look at from a historical perspective, the ground network that we had in place to be able to execute nuclear command and control with an airborne layer as well, um, was hugely impressive. And, uh, you know, I uh, I got a chance to tour a, a former AT&T bunker that sits about 70 miles north of uh, Omaha. Um, it's, it's decommissioned now. But, you know, I, I gave a speech one day uh, to a, a group, and I, uh, I gave them a set of, uh, these are parameters. This is a facility that exists in Nebraska 
and has these attributes. And, you know, for example, be able to take a 20 megaton hit within one mile and survive. Wow. You know, fully self-sealing, uh, connected to both airborne uh, and ground nodes uh, of the uh, U.S. TRACOM and previously SAC um, networks out there, um, microwave relay backup, interconnected, uh, all the wires, uh, the wires that connected essentially as part of the AT&T long line system in there, um, all shielded and buried deeply underground, um, to own generators. And, you know, everybody thought I was talking about the SAC underground. And what I was actually talking about was a 60,000 square foot EMP shielded bunker underground that was just designed to provide survivable uh, communications capability. And so we as a nation, one of the other things we have to think about are, you know, how do these other nodes, and I think this is part of the the vision of uh, U.S. Strategic Command in the NC3 Enterprise Center that's been established there, is how do we look at the future of command and control, especially survivable command and control, to complement the systems that were in development to upgrade our uh, strategic deterrent force and to survive the threat for the next 15, 20, 30 years uh, and present that capability to the president. So I don't want to discount the, the ground part of this since we've been talking about mobile command control, which is just one piece of a much larger network, but it is hugely important. And I think we as a nation need to think about you know, what, what happens during an EMP attack and can we survive that uh, and, and continue to operate uh, and and the airborne piece is one part, the ground is another part, and uh, certainly there are lots of different nodes and players in, in that. But uh, hopefully that answers kind of the question on some of the nomenclature and, and adds a little context for the audience. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I'll be honest with you. I think that was a good overview of our airborne leg of command and control. And it's it was interesting, you know, the historical component of it and then how we've seen the evolution over time. and then now from what you've said, it doesn't seem like we're in as bad a position with the airborne leg of NC3 as we may be in some other areas, pit manufacturing and, and another critical component. So it seems like we're doing a little better in this area. Yeah. And I think General Cotton has highlighted recently in his posture statements in front of Congress that, you know, those systems continue to do their job and provide us with a safe, secure, effective, and survivable uh, nuclear deterrent force. Uh, the question now is, how do we get those into the same recapitalization pipeline that we have about everything else that you just mentioned in right now? Uh, and of course, there's dollars involved, but there's also new technology and and the world changing around us. So, you know, my, I guess I would say taking, taking away from that, from the group, you know, we're about a third the size of what we once were in terms of airborne, or if you want to call it mobile command and control capability, whether that goes back up and increases or whether we find unique and new ways to do this mission that to drive less of that, but also bring new eras of survivability into the picture becomes kind of the important point, uh, you know, going forward to make sure we're including this in our cross check as well. All right. With that, I'll, we'll make that the last word. I want to thank, Major General Retired Rick Evans, NSRI Director, for coming on. Thanks for talking about the airborne leg of NC3. That was that was informative. 
Good. I appreciate again the opportunity to, to be with you and uh, and Kimberly in the audience, uh, Adam, and we look forward to potentially moving into another topic next time around. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll look forward to seeing you the next time on NucleCast. Well, that was a whirlwind tour of the airborne leg of NC3. I, uh, I tell you, Rick really does. He knows his business. He knows it well. And it was, it was interesting to see some of the historical, you know, depth of what we thought about and why we made the decisions we made. There's, there's some other stuff out there about our decision-making, but, um, it, it's, it's just, and it's also interesting to see how we've been able to maintain some of these older platforms and as, as we've continued a mission for, you know, going on 60 plus years now. And we've had, you know, some of these are 747 platforms from the 1970s that have been upgraded, you know, time after time. So it was an interesting discussion. It makes you think about a leg that is often forgotten in a, a, you know, sort of a critical component of our command and control. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.